0: only from rustolium
3: Hey guys, it's Kayla. I am so happy you're able to join us today because we are all still so directionally challenged. We thought we'd have it all figured out by the time we were in our 30s, but surprise, we don't. And that's okay. And how freeing is it to admit that it's okay to not have it all figured out? I constantly remind myself of this every day. This week, we have a phenomenal guest on. The conversation is about addiction and recovery. And Laura Cathcart-Robbins does such a phenomenal job taking us on her journey in her memoir, Stash, My Life in Hiding. I read her memoir and I knew we had to have her on the podcast. Not only am I a fan of her work, I'm a fan of her writing and how she takes us through the entire experience. We're going to talk about her recovery and what it takes to sit down and write a memoir of this magnitude. It is so honest and raw and real, and she is so brave to go there with us. Without further ado, here is my conversation with the lovely Laura Cathcart Robbins. And I am here with Laura Cathcart-Robbins. Laura, I am so honored thrilled excited everything to have you here today stash is phenomenal we were just talking off mic and i was genuinely gushing about your memoir i think it is fantastic i could not put it down ah you know this it's funny because you know the the synopsis is it's a story of just how badly the facade you created had to shatter before you could reconnect with your true self which is a phenomenal synopsis but it is next level when you're actually reading this book as a as a listener and reader. I went through everything with you. Mm. And for those who have yet to do that, will you give our listeners a synopsis, just a short synopsis of the book and take them through a little bit of your entire experience? Because I mean, it's
1: it's, <laughs> it's phenomenal. First of all, Thank you, Kayla. Thank you for inviting me on the show to talk about this. I'm a fan of your podcast, so it's exciting for me to be talking to you. We can see each other. I know that the listeners can't see us, but to see your face and hear this enthusiasm coming from you is amazing, especially about my memoir. So, yes, Dash is about 10-month period in the year 2008, during which I ended a marriage, entered treatment for drug and alcohol addiction, and Started or explored a new relationship, which is my current relationship now, almost 15 years later. But the through line of the book is that, you know, because I'm getting a divorce, I'm really just terrified of two things. I'm terrified of, of, of not using, I'm terrified of not getting loaded, and I'm terrified of not being in my children's lives. And those two things are obviously at direct conflict with one another. So it just really sets up this this tension of kind of which one, as soon as I realize that I can't have both, which one am I going to choose and then how is that going to go?
3: right and there are a lot of books about addiction we've discussed addiction on this podcast multiple times i have family members that have struggled with it too but i did not truly understand what it meant until i i read this i felt that i was going through the withdrawals with you i really understood you know the choice between your children and your drug of choice was ambien it just was fascinating to what extent you went through to try and smuggle it in to rehab i mean here's the funny part is as i'm Reading this, so spoiler alert, she does end up going to rehab at some point and we won't give away a lot of spoilers, but just for the sake of this one, the extent you went through putting it in tampons and it's just interesting to relate to your perspective of it and yeah I'm just a, a huge fan of your writing and it's interesting because the whole time throughout the book you say you you're asking yourself constantly am I a writer should I should I go and figure out how to write again and finish school and all these things and the irony is this book is so phenomenal you are clearly a writer <laughs> but I completely understand that feeling of questioning oneself even when you are phenomenal at what you're questioning. yeah. So, you know, a a lot of what you talk about is being Black and privileged and what that means. And you say in the book how it means you have to have a seamless code switcher that's what, you, that's what you call it. In order to survive, you ha- need to have this seamless code switcher that your inner dialogue going on is so far different than your outer dialogue, what, what you really want to say. Can you talk to us about walking that line and constantly feeling you have to walk the line between the two? And then also how Black experience is different in recovery.
1: Yeah, I can talk about all that. And also just just thank you for mentioning the kind of sensorial experience that I was going for where I really would just want it to drop you into my body and take you on that ride with me for 10 months which it was it was the only way I knew how to write it so I'm really glad that it that that's how you received it that means a lot to me so yeah I mean I was raised with you know by black parents in the the late 60s and early 70s and my schooling was in all white spaces like or or primarily white spaces at one point I was the only black kid in the whole school but I, I occasionally had a black classmate. My my home life, though, was was you know this kind of group of black artists and you know like politically inspired, aspired, folks who wanted to be activists. Some of them were activists. So there was, there was this very like I was steeped in blackness at home. I lived in a, a middle class black neighborhood, even though we weren't middle class. But at school, I was in these white spaces, and it just came naturally to me to kind of blend in with my surroundings. So when I was in these white spaces, I spoke the way everybody else did and behaved the same way, you know, in in a way that was, that wouldn't make me stand out. When I was at home, I did the same thing. And it didn't feel like it was at a cost to me then. I I know now that because I continued that, you know, into my teen years, into my young adult life, into my thirties and forties, there was a cost there. Because what I was doing, and still do occasionally, was was not being authentic to any one thing. But the truth is, I think I'm a blend of both of those. Like, they're both me, authentically. It's when I eliminate one so that I won't make the other one uncomfortable, like, you know what I mean, right? Yeah, I was gonna say, you know, all of us conform in one yes. Scenario, yes. scenario or another. It is just the level of conformity, exactly, exactly. So if I'm in an all white space, and I deliberately don't use a phrase or or you know move my body in a way that that they might, that might make them uncomfortable, that's at a cost to myself, right? So that I understand now. So I try not to do that anymore, but. But there is also, you know, when when one is the only per whatever, you know, if I was the only female in an all-boys school, the burden of women would be on me, right? Women do this because I did it. Women don't like this. Women are hysterical if I scream. You know what it is? And then, so being Black, it's the same. You know, the burden of Blackness is on me. I am representing everywhere that I go where I'm not the dominant culture.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know not only were you the only Black girl in your school and at one point your class, and you were also the
1: only... Okay, it wasn't the PTA president, but it was... What was it? It was.
3: It was the PTA president.
1: Yeah, at this school, is the parent association president. They don't say parent-teachers association.
3: Got it. Okay, so it's similar, similar, almost exactly the same to the PTA. And you were the first Black PTA president in... I mean, I, was it since in decades? It was 1974, yeah. yeah. And, you know, even in you think about Los Angeles being a city that that may not be the case. And it's it just it's it's astounding still that some it's shocking that these are statistics. Uh, what does it take to sit down and write a memoir of this magnitude? Because, I mean, it is so honest and raw and we are just dropped into your experience I mean, I even wrote down a quote. You said it's, it's amazing what you accept when all you want to do is check out. And it's so true. I mean, there were so many moments I had to pause. I listened to it and I had to pause and just let what you said sink in. So, you know, how do you get yourself as a writer to develop something of this magnitude? I know you lived it, but living something and writing it so that others can feel it is are two completely different things.
1: You know, I think that you mentioned me going back to take writing classes after I got sober. I I really lost the ability to read and write for pleasure after I got sober. And I, I just thought it would come back. I was trying not to focus on that. I was trying to worry or, you know, focus on my kids and being a good mom. But around five years sober, I was getting really concerned that I wasn't going to get this back organically. And that was my identity you know, and I do mention it through the book, but I'm a voracious reader and a writer for pleasure. And and because that piece of me was gone, I was really scared. So I started taking all these classes and in the writing classes I was taking, it was it was really painful. Like it just wasn't coming out. And that went on for years and years and it would get better and better. And then finally, you know, I, I got to the point where I thought I might be ready to write something. Like I could start to feel that flow when I was writing again and boy, I was so grateful for that. I had also been telling my story in recovery meetings for years, my entire story. Like not all at once, because that would take hours, but you know, over time I had told almost every aspect of my story, every aspect that mattered of my story, two rooms full of people. So and then I started writing articles also about my recovery story and getting those published. So by the time I sat down to write Stash, I knew exactly what piece of my life I wanted to write about. And it was like itching to come out. Like I had I had done all this like kind of just farming for it, like, you know, tilling this infertile ground and making it fertile again and planting the seeds and watering it. So when I sat down in front of the computer in November of 2020, it was I wrote from 11 to 7 every weekday for six months and I turned in the manuscript in April.
3: That's that's significantly fast for writing a memoir, especially if it's your first time doing it. That's incredible. I mean, not your first time, but the first time writing an actual full length memoir. And that's phenomenal. Do you feel and you said 2020? Do you feel that doing that in the pandemic
1: had an impact on how you told your story? Oh, I just think the pandemic really allowed me to tell it. Yeah, I don't know what would have happened if we were if it was 2019 when I started it and life was in session and things were going on. I, maybe I could have cleared the decks and and done something similar, but certainly the pandemic offered me this this window that needed to be filled with something, and it just seemed like a light bulb moment. Also. Harper Collins that summer had put out an Instagram post that said they would take 30 pages and a query from unagented black authors. It was their response to the cultural reckoning that was happening. It was this the deadline was September 7th or 8th and I saw it in June. I took that as a sign from the universe and I decided to get those 30 pages out and the query letter, which is like a pitch letter. And it wasn't accepted by them because they were only looking for fiction. As it turned out, I didn't read that part of the post. (laughs) (laughs) You were too excited. (laughs) I was very excited. But I also think that was helpful. I think that Black people, I don't think this, I know that Black people, Black authors for the first time were at the top of the bestseller charts during that summer because people were buying their books by the cartload, the Amazon cartload, I guess, and that it never happened before, where you saw the paperback and hardcover and audio dominated by Black authors. And I think that agents and publishers were looking for books by Black authors. And then it was also the pandemic. So there were a lot of things working in my favor.
3: Hey, guys, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back in just a minute. And we're back. You know, you met your now husband in recovery. I mean, it's just, it's the sweetest story. (laughs) Do you feel that having a partner through the recovery process helped you stay on track? Because I can imagine how difficult that would be. I felt like I went through the book with you coming back home. Your life was a lot. And it, you know, it's interesting because, you had a, a lot of what everyone would consider the perfect life and the pressure was real. The pressure was real. And I related to a lot of that in the book of having to be this certain type of person and not necessarily feeling that that's the authentic you. And so do you feel that having your partner, now partner, I guess he was he was a friend sort of romantic. You were going through the divorce, but he was came right at the right moment. Yeah. It feels like he just <laughs> yeah. came and helped you through it and you were able to help him him through it. And so how much of the success of that is because you have someone holding you accountable?
1: You know, it's, it is really, I'm so grateful that I have a partner that's in recovery and I'm not sure how it would be if he weren't, I know it would be different. I don't know that my recovery would be any different, but certainly actually it would be different. It's certainly richer because of him. And we have very different approaches to recovery even though we're in a lot of the same recovery meetings and we actually hold a meeting in our house. And we have for the last almost 14 years every Saturday morning. But the way we practice our recovery is, is different. And it's still 12-step recovery. It's still the same 12-step program. I'm very like by the book. Like I follow instructions when I cook anything. He always cooks by taste and, you know, feeling. So like that's how that's what I mean, like, how our approaches are different. I I love the direction. You know, give me give me instructions, give me direction and I'm good. He doesn't need them. And <laughs> that that so that that's a different approach, but but boy, it is the language is the same and the ability to sit down and see things through the lens of not just partners and and parents because I have his t- two bonus my my bonus daughters, his daughters and and my sons who live here um in LA. And so we have big family dinners and we can see everything through this lens of recovery together. And for me, it's phenomenal. It's it's wonderful.
3: Mm. Wow. Yeah, I can see the point the book ends. Your sons are not Really aware of I mean they they come to visit you in recovery, but they're not really sure what is happening at what point were you able to share with them, or have you shared with them what happened, and what does that even look like because, as a mother myself, I put my myself in those shoes and thought, how would I even begin a dialogue like that with my children?
1: Yeah, I think you know i was I was doing two things at once: I was getting divorced and getting well in an addiction and then getting sober and I was far more afraid of the impact the divorce was going to have on them than I was about me being an addict and then needing to get sober. Even though that was scary too, but the the divorce was, you know, they I didn't know if they knew anything. I didn't know if they knew anything about my addiction either. They didn't seem to. They didn't seem to know anything was wrong. And so the talk with them when I went to treatment was was basically like I'm taking these pills that a doctor prescribed for me and I can't stop taking them. So I need to go get help so that I don't take them anymore. That was met with a great deal of resistance because, you know, I write in the book, I had never been away from them for that long. I was dying. I was trying not to show it. I did not want to leave them. I didn't want to leave them for a night, let alone 30 of them.
3: Right. And there are different types of mothers. And you were one of the ones that didn't even want to leave them to go anywhere. And so I can't imagine
1: leaving for a a month. It was a month, right? It was a month. Yeah. And the conversations when I got back were less about the addiction and more about the divorce because that was happening then. And just, you know, my, my now ex-husband and I just kind of figuring out how to best prep them for this and how we needed to do this. So it would be, we knew it was going to be impactful. So, but that it would be uh, not, not as damaging if there was going to be any damage. We really wanted to minimize any kind of damage to them. And so, you know, there were a lot of kind of preparatory conversations that didn't directly involve it and then when we finally told them I I talk about that a little bit in the book but now so like I talked about we've had this recovery meeting in our house for the last 14 years I mean my my kids know my story they they don't know all the details of it I don't think that would be appropriate for me to have told them all the details of it but but certainly the broad strokes of it like they knew that I was addicted to something that a doctor prescribed for me and then I started taking it out of prescription and I started, you know, drinking alcohol in order to boost it. And I was really, really sick. When I got help, it was really challenging for me because I had to be away from them and blah, blah, blah. And that's where I met Scott. And I needed to let them know that the addiction was, you know, not not the reason for the divorce, even though they were, they were conflated in many different ways. But that this and that the divorce wasn't about them and neither was the addiction. Like, you know, cause kids personalize everything and, and they were little then they were, you know, they were eight and nine and then nine and 10 and, and you know, every, they're so self-centered in the best of ways, you know, but now and yeah, my kids are 23 and 25 and they haven't read the book, but just because I don't think they're very interested in it, they're incredibly proud of me. They, they want, you know, video after each time I've been on TV, they're like, send me the video, mom. And they ask about all my events. How was book soup? Like, you know, they're, they're really excited. They see me in the paper and like they're showing their friends and they're sending out to, like so they're really supportive. I did sit them down before the book went to first pass and said, look, this is what the book covers, you know, the addiction, the divorce, meeting Scott, you know, going into treatment and the through line is you guys like i'm i'm just detailing how i'm fighting to stay in your life if you're uncomfortable with any of that or if there's anything that you rather not i that i rather i not put in there you can tell me or you can read it before it goes to second pass and i'll remove it and they were just basically like, "Do you, mom? Yeah, like this is great. We we trust you. Yeah, yeah,
3: I think that trust is so important in something like that. And how lovely for them to see their mom thrive, because I think there's nothing better for a child than to watch their mother thrive. And that is so beautiful that they're sharing, <laughs> you know, clips and things with their friends. I mean, as a mom, you couldn't want anything more for them. That's that's amazing. I really want to ask about starting your PR firm. Because you, in the beginning, when you first came to LA, you started a really successful PR firm. And it was the first Black-owned PR firm in Los Angeles, which is huge. Yeah, You, you since sold it. But you, we have a lot of younger listeners on this podcast who are just starting out, kind of figuring out their careers. A lot of the listener questions are about careers and developing and figuring yourself out. So can you talk to us about how you grew to become a really successful PR firm and what that experience was like, because I know our listeners are going to want to hear that.
1: Yeah, thank you for mentioning this Cathcart Public Relations or CPR. That's what our business card said. This was pre-social media, so it was an entirely different time in public relations. But but I would imagine there are still some of the same elements in that I had to read everything, right? For me, it, they were actual physical you know, magazines and and newspapers, but I read all the major daily, all the cities, you know, Chicago, New York, Miami, Atlanta, obviously Los Angeles, San Francisco, Dallas. I would read those papers every day. And I would read the trade magazines. I was the only Black-owned entertainment PR firm. So there were other PR firms, but not entertainment. So I I owned that world, which also meant that I was on retainer with all, all the major studios and labels pretty much. To do their urban projects, I'm putting air quotes around that that means that's code for black
3: right so let's just, let's just stop that guys. can we just can yes. we just call it what it
1: is? please Thank you. Urban or mainstream I, I didn't get many of the mainstream projects, but I got a lot of the I got almost all of the urban ones. so that was a, a really nice paycheck for me. I, I, I made a name for myself doing that. It was my intention to move beyond that. You know, I didn't want to be the top black publicist. I just I was like, they don't ever say the top white publicist. Why am I the top black one? But I wanted to just be the top publicist. And I really applied the same type of discipline to that, that I did to writing this book where I, you know, I have a strategy and you see in the book in Stash, My Life in Hiding, I strategize a lot or I had a strategy and I kind of map it out. And and then I set out, like, these are my non-negotiables every day. And I adhere to that. The only reasons I don't ever adhere to them are if I'm sick or or when my kids were little, if they were sick. Otherwise, everything got moved around those. Those were the priorities. And so I studied other people. I took other publicists out for informational interviews. I really got to know journalists. I was fans of their work. Like I read their articles. I noticed what things were different and and how they were set apart from other journalists. And I expressed that to them and, you know, made friendships with them. I I was networking like I do now. I network now in writers groups, you know, like in writer circles rather. But I networked in the music industry, in the film industry, in, in television and, and modeling, too. There was, I, I had some some clients in that world as well and just really got to be someone that someone someone that anyone would associate with any of those worlds because I was always in the mix.
3: In L.A., where we both live, a lot of my experience with people is that they are, act like they know what's going on. Right. And I think the key is to act like you don't know. It's okay to admit that you don't know. That's what this podcast is about acknowledging that we don't have it all together, asking the questions, finding someone you love, taking them for lunch, saying, Can I just pick your brain? Can I figure this out? That's how
1: you move up and grow. Yeah. And, and, you know, like I'll take myself, for instance, if somebody asks me if they can pick my brain, I'm more than happy. Well, uh, once (laughs) to do that. (laughs) Maybe, maybe twice if they need, but I I'm also flattered and I have great deal of respect for the people that come to me respectfully and say, look, I know you're busy. Can I have an, an hour of your time? I love when people put a time limit around it and I can, I can make that whatever I need to No, but I can give you 30 minutes on this day. And, and then I stick to that. I was working for another PR firm and I started to bring in clients and My husband, my ex-husband said, you know, you should really be partner. You should really ask her to make you partner because you're bringing in a lot of clients. And that hadn't occurred to me. And so when I kind of fixed my mouth to ask her if I could be a partner, it didn't also didn't occur to me that what if she says no, (laughs) because then I have to have a plan, right? I can't just say, "Okay, never mind. And then stay there and work for the same salary. So what happened? What'd she say? She didn't make me a partner. She listened to me. I love her, by the way. She's amazing. She listened to me and she said, I was actually going to talk to you because I'm pregnant again. And she had just had a baby. And she says, I think I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, pare down our client list and just make it one or two clients that I can handle on my own instead of growing. Because I was bringing in a lot of business. And so the decision was kind of made for me. But I was going to go work for another firm and my ex-husband again, said, well, why don't you just start your own? And I was like, I don't know anything about starting my own. I, I know the creative part, but I didn't know the business side. You know, I, I didn't graduate from high school. I didn't go to college. I I had never been in, I, I never had anyone's livelihood depending on me before. And that seemed like a really scary prospect. Yeah. It's terrifying. Yeah. But I decided, let's try it and see what happens. And I like, well, you guys come with me if I go start a firm. They all said yes. I got a couple more clients in the process, got an office, got a, a Pitney Bowes machine. That was what you use for mail. I got a fax machine, which was also a copy machine and one of those Mac computers from the 90s with that looks like a spaceship. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and And I was in business and a pager, but I had a pager anyway.
3: Oh, and if for those listening that are <laughs> that don't know what any of these are, just look it up. Okay, you'll you'll know right away. <laughs> yes, yes. Hey guys, we're gonna take a quick break. We'll be right back in just a minute.
0: Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.
1: A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend.
2: customer survey 96 percent replied that bowl and branch sheets get softer with every wash start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come try their sheets with a 30 night guarantee plus get 15 percent off your first order at bowlandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details
3: And we're back. There's a theme throughout the book that I was surprised by, and I, I related to a lot was finding your people, kind of finding your tribe. And sometimes we surround ourselves with people that we feel like we can fool, you know, into the, into us being a certain type of person. And now that you like, uh, now that you have your life with your husband, with your, your meetings in your home every Saturday, how do you find? Those people that you truly feel like you can be your authentic self with, because I think so many of us say yes to things and people that we don't want to. And we find ourselves living this life of doing so many things that we just simply don't want to do. And it feels a bit hollow and it doesn't feel grounded and substantial. And, you
1: know, so how do you find those people? So the people that are in my life that are my friends, like my core group of friends are the same women from the book. They are my, I call them my sex in the city girlfriends in the book. You know, the thing that I discovered was that even though to a degree, they all really enjoyed the life that I was pretending to enjoy. Once I, I got sober and became honest or more honest, like I live a pretty rigorously honest life now. Like, I don't tell you I'm five minutes away if I haven't left my house. I don't do that. It's a very slippery slope for me, dishonesty. So my fear was that if I am myself, especially in this group of women who all seem to enjoy the same things in the same way with the same people and their kids are all kind of cookie cutters of, you know, like everybody seemed to be the same for me, except for me. And if I was myself with them, they would probably not want to be my friends anymore. And that was the worry, right? And the thought That was one of the worries. I had many worries, but that was certainly one of them. And then there's a part of me that quickly steps in and says, like, can you curse on this? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yes. (laughs) Thanks for asking. (laughs) But quickly steps in and says, fuck it. If they don't want you, right, then they're not your friends in the first place. And we're better off without them. So I had those two things happening. But, you know, through... With the help of my therapist, who I loved, loved, love, and I talk about her in the book, she was extremely helpful to me. I really decided not to kind of modulate who I was around anyone anymore, including my friends. You know, I think they liked me better. I, I think they were, I don't know if they liked me better, but they were so appreciative of it. And it, I think it allowed, I won't speak for them, but it seemed to me that it allowed them to be more of themselves. When I was telling the truth about how I felt about all these things, you know, not in like word vomit all over and like, I hate this, I hate this, I hate this. But as things came up, like the joke is now, Kayla, that if they invite me out to dinner, which we go out to dinner pretty regularly, I'm leaving first. They know it. I am not staying. And, you know, after that third round of drinks is ordered, I'm pretty much gone.
3: Yeah, yeah.
1: And and I, I don't sugarcoat why I don't pretend that I have, you know, something early in the morning. I say I really just want to go back and get in bed with Scott and watch a show. <laughs> so. so refreshing, though, and so nice to have. Yes. And
3: the truth is, they have felt that before, too. And I think just being honest now is so refreshing. And I, I do think you're right. People really appreciate it and love it and love you for it. And. You love you for it. We all love ourselves more when we're solely authentic to who we are. Why do you think it's so difficult for us to be our authentic, true selves? Or it can be difficult. Listen, some people really, truly have it figured out. And you are definitely one of those people now, which I so appreciate and respect. But it does seem difficult at times to, I guess, yeah, I'm speaking for myself. I, I think I care too much about what other people think.
1: Yeah, I think for me it's fear of discomfort of any kind. If someone ever booked me on a middle seat on an airplane, <laughs> I know that my blood pressure would rise. <laughs> and it's not anger, it's fear. Like, how am I gonna get through that flight? And that's a that's a for me, that's an extreme example. But but the fear of like, you know, if I tell you I'm leaving early and you're disappointment disappointed that disappointment is going to cause me discomfort because I might feel guilty or I might feel obligated to stay longer or I might, you know, like, so I don't really know how to navigate that as well. So I'd rather not. I don't want to navigate that discomfort. I'd rather just not navigate it at all and then endure something. And so I know this about myself very well now. So I kind of coach myself through not doing it. Not so much anymore. It's more second nature now, but for years I would say stand on the sidelines and kind of watch myself where they like, come on, just stay for another hour. Like, what are you going to do, Laura? Are you going to endure, you know, dinner after dessert's been cleared for another hour? Or are you going to go home the way you want to? And, you know, sometimes it depends if someone's having a hard time, if it's someone's special birthday, you know, I could be talked into or I could volunteer to stay if it's someone that, that's struggling with something. But if it's just convivial kind of hanging out and having fun, I'm out.
3: Mm -hmm. I'm out after
1: dessert. I don't care.
3: I love I absolutely love that I do before we let you go want to want to get to talking about your podcast because I think it's so lovely you have a widely popular podcast called the only one in the room and that clearly comes from your life experience feeling like you were the only one in the room except you bring stories on of people who are just fascinating and fantastic can you share with our listeners some of your favorite episodes or favorite stories or favorite experiences while developing and having it.
1: Yeah. Thank you for, for mentioning it. It is the thing that I didn't expect to love that's in my life. I really started the podcast to help build a writer's platform. And I thought that this would be something I would dabble in. And it's taken on a life of its own. We're almost 700 episodes. And I think we started it in 2019. Scott's my co-host. He's also the producer, which Means I kind of work for him in a way, which is weird, but (laughs) (laughs) like he can tell me what to do. So we tell stories of anyone. It started off with me being the only Black person at a 600 person retreat and writing about that. And then that turned into let's tell stories of people who feel like the only one in the room or have been the only one in the room. And so it can be anything like we have a woman who is a young widow on. A very young widow talking about her experience didn't look like what a widow should look like, right? She's going to drop off with her, her, her kid and, you know, going to all these different events, but she's not divorced. She's widowed. And that's a very isolating experience. One of my favorite conversations was with John Cryer, the actor, and I thought we were going to talk about, he was playing Lex Luthor on Supergirl at the time, and I thought we were going to talk about comic books, because I'm a little bit of a comic book nerd. That's one of the little known facts about me. And I love that. (laughs) Wow. And and so is he. So I thought we were going to, you know, just kind of jam about comic books. And we ended up, he's really... Really well researched and just really smart about the difference between bigotry and racism and bias, not just in our country, but period. And we had this really amazing in-depth conversation about that and how aware he is of his privilege as a not just as a white man, but as as you know a, 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 a TV star and. Because he was on two and a half men. Everybody's like, who's John Cryer? I'm like, not Charlie Sheen. The, the other, other guy. The other <laughs> yeah. one
3: in two and a half men. You've seen yeah. him every night on reruns for the past decade. Exactly,
1: yeah. exactly. And at one point, one of the highest paid actors on television he was. And he's that was just like, I woke up so much during that conversation. I was like, damn, John Cryer. All right. This was a totally different conversation than I thought we were going to have. And and he's he's actually, he's my neighbor, probably our neighbor, too. He's in the same neighborhood. That was one of my favorite conversations. My conversation with K.S.A. Lehman. Do you know who he is? Yes. The yes. author. Uh-huh. Oh, my goodness. Kayla, like that. I was, I read heavy, for those of you listening, if you haven't read it you know, run, do not walk to get this book heavy. It's uh, written by Kiese Lehman, who is a Black American author. He's a Southern man. He's a Mississippian. He's a professor. He's an incredible writer. And he writes about his experience with addiction, a different addiction than mine. And, you know, regarding food and body image, which you never see Black men writing about ever. And he writes about it so beautifully. So I read this on vacation and then I DM'd him as I do because I'm bold like that. And he responded right away and said, yes, I'd love to be on your podcast. And I was like, what? So I'm out of my body. You might be able to hear it the whole interview. I'm like trying to like, OK, stay here, stay here, stay here. It's KSA, it's KSA, it's KSA. Uh, but I love, love, love that conversation. Um And then the last conversation was kind of an off-the-beaten-path one. It was Kimberly Russell, who was an actress. What was she on? She was on Head of the Class. Oh, my God. She was on Head of the Class. And she was also in Ghost Dad with Bill Cosby, which, you know, whatever. That was back then. Her story is phenomenal in that she had a few kids. I don't remember how many kids, three or four. And she had a friend. She had a mom at school. So imagine, like, one of your carpool moms asking you to go to a doctor's appointment with her and then ending up in the hospital with her getting a death sentence with weeks to live and right there in the room she asked you to raise her five children. Kimberly said yes before she talked to her husband before she talked to her three kids that's what she had three kids at home and and then so I won't spoil the rest of the story. yeah, it's amazing and I went through a flood of emotions, you know, just a roller coaster of emotions during the interview and came out with just so much awe and admiration for this woman. So... Those, those are the top three that come to mind, but we have so many, so many great stories.
3: Right. And that's one thing that's so great about being, having a podcast is being able to have those conversations and constantly learning and growing and changing and becoming a better version of you and just a more experienced version. And yeah, that's so lovely. I'm a huge fan of your podcast too. So we will, I'll continue to listen. And I know all our listeners will want to know your socials and
1: especially because you DM people, that's how you get in there. So
3: but do you want to give us your socials?
1: Yeah, I mean, the the best way to reach me is on Instagram. I went on Twitter the other day and I saw all of these messages like from 2017. <laughs> it's,
3: it's, it's overwhelming, especially with the Elon Musk thing. We don't know what's happening. It's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. Yeah. A whole yes.
1: Thing. Thank you. Thank you. So Instagram is at Laura Cathcart Robbins. Cathcart is C-A-T-H-C-A-R-T. Robbins is R-O-B-B-I-N-S. Uh, and I'm also our website is the only dot com. And on there are Facebook, Twitter, TikTok. I'm on TikTok, which I'm not, I don't pay much attention to, but I'm on there, and Instagram, and also all the podcast episodes. Everything for "Stash My Life in Hiding" can be found there. All the press, the New York Times review, going to be in Oprah Daily this week. They're printing an excerpt from it, so look out for that. Oh yes. my god! Congratulations! I think it's Wednesday of this week, but we I don't know what week this is. But anyway, check okay. out Oprah Daily after you listen to this and see my
3: excerpt. Yes, this will be out in a few weeks. So actually it will have already come out. Yes. (laughs) But that's phenomenal. Well, I'm a huge fan. I'm so grateful for your time and your energy today and grateful that this exists in the world for many who will need it. You're truly amazing. So thank you so much. I really appreciate you. Thank you, Kayla. Thank you so much. I'm sure you guys can hear me as I'm interviewing her, but I'm such a fan. I'm definitely gushing and have the biggest smile on my face the entire time. I really appreciate when someone is honest and her level of honesty is is just admirable and that is definitely something I'm working on in my life so to see someone live that and have that be their truth is something I really admire and I just think she's a phenomenal human and I'm happy that we're neighbors I had no idea we were neighbors until I started to read her memoir (laughs) so I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did we have another great one coming for you next week until then take care Directionally Challenged is a production of Pineapple Productions, hosted by me, Kayla Yule, produced by Melissa DeMonts and Diamond Imprint Productions, editing by Diane Kang, post-production sound by Coco Lawrence, and production assistance by Melanie D. Watson.